Well, I begin with a question. Have you ever had a bad day? Well, of course you have. There are some of you coming to this place this morning having had a bad night or a bad day or a bad week. We all have those times, don't we? We all have times that we wish we could redo, go over, have a redo. Even our Lord Jesus had bad days. We're going to study in John 7, 11 and following one of his worst days to date. But I want to begin with a story. Now, some of you, after you hear this story, are going to think, I have lost my mind for sharing such a story. Well, if you don't know me, you already know that's already a foregone conclusion. Um, it's, it's already happened. I've, I've been that way for a long time. But supposedly this is a true story about a very bad day on behalf of one person. Well, there were two women shopping in Texas at a shopping mall. Their names are Kay and Ellen. Ellen and Kay went shopping, and they'd just gone to Kohl's. Now, I've never been in a Kohl's, but I've spent a lot of money in a Kohl's. Did you make me go to one one time? One time. Yes, I have. Okay, I've been to one one time, but I've spent a lot of money in that place. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, I don't know where they are. It, it, it doesn't matter. But Ellen and Kay have gone shopping, and they come out to stash their goods in their trunk because they want to go eat. I know it's Texas because where they were going to eat is a K&W cafeteria, and those are in Texas. And I've eaten there. It's good. Dale makes fun of me for eating in cafeterias where old folks eat, but I like them. She makes fun of me for a lot of things where I like to eat. But anyway, Ellen and Kay came out to the parking lot. They were going to their car, and they saw a terrible thing. Someone had run over a small feline. Do you know what that is? A cat. There's a dead cat in the parking lot. It's awful. And they are just aghast. And they wait to see if someone will come and, and, and pick up the dead animal. And no one comes. And, and Ellen said, well, let's just go on. You know, somehow pick it up. Kay says, I, can't, I cannot leave the animal there. I can't do it. Well, what are we going to do? Well, I've got, I've got to put it... Uh, let's transfer my stuff into your bag, and I'll put the thing in my bag, and we'll, we'll dispose of it. So this is the way they're thinking. And so they transfer one from one bag to the other, and they go and stash that bag in the trunk of their car. And then they realize that if they put that deceased feline in the Texas heat trunk, it's gonna, not going to be well. So she does scoop it up with some tissue because... Y'all have tissue in those bags. I don't know why you put tissue in bags. I don't understand that. But she had tissue. She picks up gently this poor little feline, puts it in the empty bag, and sets it on top of her trunk, thinking, I'll just leave it out because I can't put it inside the trunk, and we'll dispose of it after we finish. So Ellen and Kay go into the cafeteria. Now, they go through the line and get their stuff, and they, they come back out, and they, uh, no, they, excuse me, they sit down to eat their food, and they keep an eye on this bag. And to their horror, another lady walks by and sees the bag on the truck and grabs it and goes. They, they can't believe this. This woman has stolen that bag right off the trunk of her car and not knowing what's inside of it. Well, it gets better. It gets better because they're still just in horror that this has happened when 
that woman comes into the K&W cafeteria carrying the Coles bag. Stay with me. Stay with me. Gets better. Gets better. She goes through the line. She obviously had enough money for food. She goes through and buys her food. She sits down not too far from Ellen and Kay. Their jaws are literally on the ground. They cannot believe what is happening. The woman starts to eat. She eats a few bites of some kind of white fish, they said. Why does that matter? It doesn't. But after she's eaten a little bit to get her hunger down a little bit, she pulls the coals bag up to look and see what she has gotten. Opens that bag up and the story says all of a sudden they heard gasping sounds coming from this woman. And she starts having a spell is what we call it right there. Well, the, if someone calls 911 and in a little bit, I mean ambulances, fire trucks, you know, everybody has to show up. 15 police, they all show up. And here's this woman just gasping for life. The, I mean, they start doing Heimlich maneuver on her. They're doing uh, compressions. They're doing everything before and after they get there. And I mean, it's a spell. And, and poor Ellen and Kay are just sitting over there just trying not to laugh out loud. Well, they start hauling the woman away. And you know what makes it a, not just a bad day, but a very bad day for that woman? The EMS people picked that coals bag up and put it on her belly as she is leaving the K&W cafeteria. She's going to get that blessing over and over and over because she stole that bag. Well, some days are bad and some days are very bad. Well, now if I can rein you back in, I told you I should not have used that story. It's absolutely indicative of my mental state. But there are days that you can learn from, and there are days you can actually laugh at. But there are days that are so bad you can't just do anything but cry. You just can't do anything but cry. And that's true really in the situation that we're going to read about this morning because Jesus had a very bad day. Now, you say, well, why do, you, why do you preach about things like that? Shouldn't you be preaching about uh, Hark the Herald Angels sing or something? Well, we'll get to that next week, okay, and the week after that. But I like to teach and preach the whole counsel of God. God teaches us something even through the bad times as well as the good times. And as we've been studying the Gospel of John, I promise you we're going to study every verse. It includes some John 3.16 passages, but it also contains some John 7.22 passages as well. So look with me. It's a long passage, but stay with me. We're going to see. Remember I told you we're, chapter 7 deals with the Feast of Tabernacles. And there are three major sections, and this is the middle of those Two, uh, three major sections. Look with me to John seven eleven. You got it? It says, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining coming from the people concerning him. Some said he is good, and others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. Stop with me there just a moment. How can he teach at the temple? 
Well, in the temple, there was, of course, the Holy of Holies, that inner place. Right around the Holy of Holies and the holy place, there was a sacrificial area. But there was a large area outside of it called the Court of Israel, where Jewish men could go. And then there was the Court of uh, women, where the women could go. And then on the outside was called a Court of the Gentiles, where even Gentiles could go and worship. Well, in one of those places, Jesus, like many itinerant preachers, could preach or teach. And a crowd would gather around him in that courtyard area. And that's where he begins to teach. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered, and what does that mean? He didn't have a Ph.D. He did not have a seminary degree. How can this man teach like this? He's never been to school for it. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, now this is the key verse, verse 17. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20. The people answered him and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel." Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now look at verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he's from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught them in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time, his hour, had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When this Christ comes, will he do more signs than these, than that which this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. But Jesus then said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I shall go to him who sent me. Now look at verse 34. It's one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. You will seek me and you will not find me. For where I am you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, 
Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach to the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me, you'll not find me, for where I am, you cannot come? Oh, friends, it's a long passage, but remember what I told you a couple of weeks ago. There are three time divisions in, the, in John chapter 7. There's the feast, of course, but there's verses 1 through 10 that we studied already. And then verses 11 through 36 that we look at today. And then the latter part of chapter 7, the last part of the feast day. We also said it can be uh, put in three different ways. There's disbelief, debate that we see right now, and division. So right now we see the debate going on in verses 11 through 36. Well, look at several things with me this morning, please. First of all, this public debate about the Lord Jesus involved three different groups of people. It can get confusing as you read these texts and not understand who he was referring to. Well, first of all, there were Jewish leaders involved in this discussion. Jewish leaders. These Jewish leaders uh, made up from two different sects, S-E-C-T-S. The Pharisaical sect, as well as the chief scribes. These were what we call Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the keepers of the law, they, uh, excuse me, keepers of the, uh, of the scribes and the Torahs, they had deep theological differences. Didn't like each other at all. But they had a common enemy. They had a common enemy, and his name was Jesus. And they came together, even though they were deeply disparate in their beliefs, they came together to try to get rid of Jesus. So you've got the Jewish leaders he talks to at one point. Then there's what we call the people. That's referred to there in verse 20. These are the festival crowd. These are people who come from outside to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. They don't know what's going on between Jesus and the religious leaders. They don't know, and like most people today, they don't care. But then there's a third group of people, the Jews who lived in Jerusalem. Most likely they would have sided with the religious leaders of the day. So you've got the residents, not the out-of-towners, the second group, not the religious leaders, but the basic folk who live round about. So you got three different groups of people in this debate going back and forth. And that might help you as you under, to understand this passage. Now let's move a little deeper. The debate began really before even Jesus arrived at the city. And it centered on his character. And there you see verses 11, 12, and 13. They tried to debate whether or not Jesus is a good man. So it debated, uh, they debated his character. It says that the religious leaders kept on seeking him while the crowd kept arguing about whether or not he was a good man. He's a good man. Well, I don't think so. I think he's deceiving people. So there was this constant debate going on among the people about his character. Well, they were right in one sense. Either he is who he said he was, or he's a liar, or he is a deceiver. Well, which one is he, friends? Well, I know you have an opinion, 
But we see this debated about, about Jesus' character. And then the debate shifts. Point number three, the debate shifts to his doctrine. And this goes between verses 14 and 19 as we see the debate uh, about his doctrine. Now, we know character and doctrine go together. It's foolish to trust the teachings of a deceiver or a liar. So they begin to question his credentials, as I've already pointed out. Wait a minute, how can this man talk like this? They marveled, the leaders said, because he's never studied. What does that mean? Jesus seemed to be some itinerant preacher who came out from nowhere. They did not know him. They did not see a degree behind his name plate. I'm joking about that. He had not been to seminary. He had not been to college. He had not studied They knew in that area who were learned people and who were not. And Jesus was not one of them. How could he be talking like this? So there's something wrong here because he can't teach like he's teaching because he's never been to school. He's not approved by us. So they began to debate his credentials and basically thinking, I'm sure, that if his opinions were his own opinions, private opinions, then fine, but that doesn't have any sway on us because we teach from the authority of the law. Well, Jesus didn't teach from authority. He was the authority. And he taught with authority from the Father, even though he didn't have the credential degrees that they thought he ought to have. So he and the Father now, he claims, he had already claimed that they were one in their works. He had already claimed that the miracle that he had already done where he healed someone on the Sabbath day, and they're arguing about that. Oh, by the way, they didn't mind doing the work of circumcision on Sunday. He said, so, wait a minute, you can do what you want on Sunday or Sabbath, and when I heal a man on the Sabbath, I'm to be destroyed. You're not making sense with yourself, he pointed out. But now he claims that not only are his works one with the Father, But now he claims his teaching comes straight from the Father. So he has taken this to a whole new level. Everything I say to you comes from the Father because if it came from me, I'd be seeking my own glory. But I seek only the glory of the Father. So he claims his teachings come from God the Father. So the last and maybe the most important question for us this morning How then can we believe who Jesus is? How can we believe he's teaching us the truth? How can we in the 21st century, as well as the 1st century people, believe that he is telling us the truth? Well, he really tells us this in verse 17. It is not easy to understand. He said in verse 17, we need to look at verse 18 also. If anyone wants to do his will... He shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it's from God or whether it's from me. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. He who seeks his own glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. So was Jesus suggesting a pragmatic test? If it works, it's right? No. That's not what he was saying. He was saying something much deeper. He was not suggesting some kind of shallow taste test. See if you think it works for you. He was saying, if you really do what I've asked you to do from a relationship, from a deep, 
intimacy with me. If you do that, then you'll know what I'm saying comes straight from God the Father. And my friends, when you get close enough to the Lord, you begin to realize when you hear something from the Lord, your spirit immediately identifies with that. And you begin to think, that's right. I know it's true because my relationship with the Lord is a personal experiential one. In a little bit, we're going to have the Lord's Supper, and it's a special time for believers. And we're going to ask you to bring forward, those of you that haven't already, a testimony sheet. Some of you have not done it. Some of you still working on it. You're a little slow. i got extra sheets down here if you say, claim, the dog ate mine, and I don't have it. we got extra sheets for you to do it. And again, why did I ask you to do that? I know I said, and it shocked some of you, and then you finally realized I was telling the truth. I'm going to do some of you's funeral. I'm going to outlive you. And I want to be able to pull that sheet out and say, here's what she says about her relationship to Christ. Here's what he says about his relationship to Christ. It's a powerful thing in that kind of setting to read your own words of how you have a deep experiential relationship with God the Father. Jesus is simply saying that a deep personal commitment of the person to truth reveals the truth. You understand what he is saying? The Jews depended on education. The Jews depended on authorities. But Jesus said, You must have an experience with the authority of truth personally. And when you do, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine where it comes from. So the first debate really was with the Jews, but the visitors of the city now enter into the discussion. Look at verse 20. Jesus had already said, these guys are trying to kill me. But the visitors, of course, did not know that. They were from out of town. They didn't know nor care. And they said, well, nobody trying to kill you. What's wrong with you? Are you do you have a demon or something inside of you? There's not, nobody's trying to kill you. Well, it's a serious accusation to say that someone has a demon. Serious then, serious now. And he used the very law of Moses to refute the enemy's argument. He But he knew they would not give in. Why? Because they evaluated things on the basis of a superficial examination or evidence. They thought they knew what they thought they needed to know in order to make a sacrificial judgment about the character and doctrine of Christ. They evaluated things very superficially. So the residents of Jerusalem, verse 25 They enter the conversation. They're amazed that he's teaching openly. And they say, well, don't these people know who you are, Jesus? Now, they're not being true believers at this point. In fact, they're they're asking a rhetorical question, expecting a, a negative answer. Don't they know you're the Son of God? No, they don't. But see, here's their whole logic, both of the leaders and of the people. The logic was this. Uh, nobody knows where the Messiah is going to come from, but we know where he's from. So therefore, he can't be the Messiah. Now, 
this is all based on wrong evidence and superficial understanding. First of all, the Bible does say where the Messiah was going to come from. If they had studied their prophecies correctly, they would know that Jesus or the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. Some of them did know that, but others said, we don't know where he's going to come from. But we know where this guy's from, so he can't be the Messiah. Because they knew he was Jesus of Nazareth. Though he was not born in Nazareth. And if they had thought to check into it, they would have realized that he wasn't born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. Five miles southeast of the center of Jerusalem. A little village now just a suburb of Jerusalem. But you see, they were basing everything on, sac- on, on, on really superficial examination. They were blinded by what they thought were dependable facts. And my friends, that's exactly where the vast majority of people are in the 21st century. Most of your neighbors reject the gospel because they don't think it's real or right in some way, shape, form, or fashion. So Jesus raised his voice in verse 28. I mean, he cries out, gets their attention. And what does he say to them when he cries out? He explains why they didn't know him. He said, you don't know me because you don't know the Father. And then he says something even sadder. And I'm fixing to go somewhere in less than six months. And you can't follow me because you don't know me. You cannot go where I am going because you do not know the Father and you do not know me. He not only knew the Father, but he was sent by him. And he is once again claiming to be God. A crisis hour has come. A bad day is now a very bad day. They want to kill him so badly. The Bible says in another place, they're gnashing their teeth. They want him dead so badly. Because Jesus here... (laughs) reveals to them their lack of knowledge of reality. You don't even know the Father, much less me. A crisis hour, they seek to have him arrested, but really he arrests them. And he says in verse 33 and 34, you've got little time. You don't even know me. I shall go with, I shall go with you a little while longer, but then I will go to him who sent me. I'm going to be here a little while longer. you got a little more time. And some did believe, at least superficially, praise the Lord. But the people misunderstood what he was saying over and over and over. Had they been willing to do God's will, they would have known the truth. But it's so sad that they, like most people in 21st century America, rejected the truth. They didn't understand it. They did not follow it. They did not seek And so our hearts should break the lack lack of acceptance of and understanding of the truth of God's Word. It ought to break our hearts as we look around at our neighbors and see the casual indifference that we see manifested in John 7 on the part of the festival crowd and the leaders and most of the residents. Well, some did believe, the Bible says, some did believe in verse 31 and it may have been a shallow faith because of miracles some did believe in him but most said no so what are we to do I want to say three things in closing first of all I ask that you 
bind together with me to pray like never before. We need to pray. Now, we pray in our church, particularly on Wednesday nights, we have a prayer time that I think is precious and special, but we ought to be praying most of all for the lost people around us. That ought to be number one on every prayer list you ever have, praying for the lost. And some of you may say, well, I don't really even know any lost people, and then there's something wrong with you. You ought to be out there amongst them, getting to know lost people. You ought to be doing something in your life that puts you with lost people. So don't admit to me you don't know lost people. I don't want to hear that. We ought to be praying for the lost, binding together to pray. Second, we need to submit ourselves unto the Lord and to his truth to be the servants God wants us to be. Let's manifest to our neighbors a changed life, a new way of living that is qualitatively different. Let us pray, but let us submit ourselves to the truth. And then third, let's tell the truth and engage the people. Jesus, I mean, he just told them, listen, where I'm fixing to go, he didn't use the word fixing, that's a term we use in this side of the pond. Where I'm fixing to go, you cannot go. Because I'm going to heaven. Where I'm going to intercede for every man, woman, boy, and girl yet to be born. Where I'm going to go, we need to tell people the truth. But let me tell you, I hear so much pablum out there. Well, I'm sure everybody's going to go to heaven. They're not going to go to heaven. Where Jesus is, some will not go. And we need to tell the truth. Not in a harsh, censorious way, but in a loving way that says you need to understand there's a reality beyond this and we want you to go to heaven where Jesus is. But without him, you will not go there. It's a serious issue. It's a life and death issue. And so we must bind together to pray, submit ourselves so that we will live qualitatively different lives, but tell the people the truth and engage them. Now in Ephesians it says to speak the truth in love. I love that passage. Maybe I'll preach on it someday. But it's a powerful passage. Speak the truth in love. Now, if you speak the truth without love, what have you got? You've got cold-hearted legalism. And we've got a lot of that around here. But if you speak love without truth, what are you doing? You're loving people straight to hell. And I know a lot of churches around us where people are loved straight into hell. Are we going to love you? We're not going to judge you. I never could figure out what that even meant. Have you ever had somebody say, don't judge me? Don't even know what that means, really? What do you mean, don't judge you? I love you. I love you. Speak the truth in love. There's, it's just a fast. I don't need to get off on that too much, but there's no word. It's a, it's a, it's a hard word to translate into English because the word is truthing. It doesn't really say speak. It's a word that means whatever you do, you need the truth in love. You're living, you're loving, you're acting, you're relating. You need the truth in love. So he says there needs to be that joint telling the truth, but also telling the truth in a loving, kind, winsome way. You ever had a bad day? Well, of course you have. You ever had a very bad day? Well, yes, you have. Jesus had a very bad day. And I wish I could say 
it got real better real quick, but it didn't. The people didn't understand, and they didn't want to understand. And so the leaders are after him, want to take his life. But you know, inside he's thinking, you can kill me and you will. Not yet, but soon you will. But I'm going to die for you. Those that seek to take my life, I'm doing it for you. I'm going to willingly lay down my life. I'm going to be a sacrificial lamb for you. Isn't that wonderful? He loves us so much. Oh, my friends, let us bind together to pray. Let us submit ourselves that we might live qualitatively different lives. And third, let us tell the truth and engage people speaking the truth in love. Would you pray with me? Father God, I know Jesus had a bad day. It didn't surprise him. It didn't surprise you. It was all part, Lord, of a a grand, grand plan to redeem the world unto yourself. But God, here we are in the 21st century, still with people who are the same way they were in the first century. Still not understanding, still not believing. But God, in this room, you've brought some men, women, boys, and girls here today that need you, that need the truth, and need to submit ourselves so much to you that we will know that you come from the Father. And I ask, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you'd work in the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl today, that we might submit to you in truth. And we'll know. So, God, I'm praying for submission today of spirit and will and personality and soul unto you. Oh, God, we pray for that. We ask for that. And I ask for that even in my own life. In Jesus' precious name, amen.